0: I was like, Jim Shannon loves it. He's like, that's my Molly. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't care. He lets me hike my pants up as far as they go. No, no judgment from Jim. Yeah.
1: Uh. I'm Erin Hosier, and I'm Elizabeth Thompson, and it, that was actress, performer, comedian. Molly Shannon talking about Jim Shannon, her dad, and how much he supported her, even when she was displaying Camel Toe while playing Sally O'Malley on Saturday Night Live, one of her big characters. This is a really
2: exciting special episode of Tell Me About Your Father. Erin, you recently got to interview Molly Shannon live on her book tour in Cleveland, Ohio. Yes. Where you currently reside and where Molly is a hometown hero. She has a new memoir out called Hello, Molly. That's right. From Echo Harper Collins. Tell me everything. Tell the listeners everything. How did this come to
1: be? What was it like? It was a real shocker. Like three weeks ago, I was minding my own business and I got an email on a Sunday from my librarian friend, Lori Kinzer from the Cuyahoga County Library. And she's like, you know, Molly Shannon, another hometown gal who also left to go to New York and make a splash, her new book is teeming with daddy issues. Now, Lori is a fan of the show. And so I think she sort of put me forward and said, this is the gal. And here we are. And boy, were you the gal to talk to
2: Molly. You sent me the audio from this interview last week, and you guys cover so much. You, oh, I mean, the book covers so much, right? You, You learn about yeah. Molly's incredible drive and, you know, rise to fame on SNL kind of a familiar story that you hear of people that are told no at first and they keep trying and they keep going. But she also had this really interesting and remarkable relationship with her father, Jim, who was very encouraging of her and encouraged her to perform and be funny since childhood. And the other aspect of their relationship is that her early childhood was marked by this just tremendous tragedy. Can you talk a little bit about that, Erin, about talking to Molly about it live?
1: Yeah, we had to open our conversation with the tragedy, which we'll get into right off the bat. It was my first question to her because it opens the book. Her dad was driving on June 1st, 1969, and there was a car accident that killed her mother, her baby sister, Katie, her cousin, Fran and she and her dad and her sister Mary were the only survivors. And so it's a tough way to go into a largely comic, Mm -hmm. you know, life story. And so when I met her like five minutes before we were meant to go on stage, we'd never met. They had been late, traffic. We just had to like go right on stage. And I said, Is there anything you don't want to talk about? She had just been on Howard Stern and there was like a lot of headlines. And she's like, no, I'm an open book, obviously. But when it comes to the car accident, I just need you to say all the details. I don't like to say the circumstances. Um, So that was kind of fun. You'll hear the shakiness in my voice a little bit when we begin. But then it's just just a beautiful conversation. And it, there's really something in this for everyone. She imparts wisdom on those who are struggling to make it or just going through a lot of rejection in life. She never took no for an answer. But she always brings the conversation back to her dad and his influence on her life. I love that It's a celebration of the evolution of a life, you know, like no parent is perfect, but what counts is their effort and their honesty and their love. And I feel like that is encapsulated in Jim Shannon and she Mm -hmm. just keeps bringing us back.
2: Yeah, it really struck me listening to the audio, Erin. She gets emotional a few times and it's a very emotional story, her story. And she's probably told these stories a million times already and she's written about them and she's still so affected by them and so open about her vulnerability around them. And I really appreciated that. And it's just a beautiful conversation. She's very careful about how she speaks about her father around the accident, but There Mm -hmm. had been some alcohol involved that day. The details are hazy all these years later about whether or not he was, you know, there was no field sobriety test, there was no anything, but there was alcohol involved. He was an AA through most of his life. And um, we find out some details later around his sexuality. Mm -hmm. And the way that she speaks about it, it was such, you know, there's no anger, there's no resentment. She's clearly done a lot of work around it. And I just thought it was so. It was so beautiful how she spoke about him. And I really,
1: really admired that about Molly Shannon. I know, right? Another special thing about this conversation, and we left a lot of it in, are her ties to Cleveland and how so many of her childhood besties really informed her characters. Mm -hmm. And she's so loyal to everybody to this day and in the book, too writing about the character Anne Rampt, her her best friend who she hopped a plane to New York with, stowed away, (laughs) dared by her father. And Anne Rampt herself was in the audience and came on stage and told that story. So you'll hear some of that audio. And she's super funny, too. It's such a crazy story. The quote shenanigans her dad
2: encouraged her to do, including literally hopping a plane to New York.
1: Speaking of shenanigans, really quickly. There's a story in the book and that she'll tell in this interview about how when she was in L.A. trying to make it without an agent, she had this scam with her friend that she called the Mammoth scam, where she would impersonate his agent in order to get auditions for herself and her friend. And we couldn't help noticing that Hello Molly debuted at number two on the New York Times bestseller list last week. And Mr. Mamet's book is number seven. <laughs> so let's take it to number one. Bye, hello, Molly. Oh, no, so good. Here's more of my conversation with Molly Shannon. Unfortunately, we have to start off with the saddest story yes. in the world. The book opens with the terrible, tragic accident in 1969, You're Family went to a graduation party. You were four. Your sister Mary was six. Yes. And you had a baby sister, Katie. Yes. And it was one of those graduation parties in Mansfield for a cousin. Yes. And it had been a long day, and maybe there was drinking. Your yes. dad had taken a nap. Yes. And you left the party with your cousin Fran to take her home back to Shaker Heights. And there was a terrible crash, and mm-hmm. you and your sister Mary and your dad were the only survivors. Mm-hmm. Yes. What's it like to open your book that way?
0: Yes, that was, that was um, really tragic, and that car accident did change my life forever. I was four years old, and it felt like life as I knew it changed in a split second. But my dad, you know... Pulled himself up and had to raise two little girls by himself, learned how to walk all over again. And it was really sad. And I think I was grieving and, you know, it was confusing. And I I didn't really understand what death was. So I I went into a little bit of a fantasy waiting, thinking she was going to come back or something, you know. So, yes, it it was very sad. And I think, I guess I started the book that way because it did, that accident did have a profound effect on my life. But there's no way that I could not write about it in the book since right. it was such a big deal. So I just figured let's do it and then we'll get it over with, and you can move on with the book. So yes, it is very sad. And and I even writing it, I felt like when I was writing that chapter, I almost felt like I'm holding my breath. And then when I finish, I'm like, okay, am I done with that chapter? Whew. And I wanted to yeah. make sure I laid it all out correctly. Yeah. And it was a complicated, you know, thing, because yes, there had been drinking and then my dad took a nap, and then they left much later, and then I think he asked my mom if she would drive, or my cousin, and they were like, no, you're fine, you can drive, and, and uh, my aunt, you know, her 25-year-old daughter came with us, so my dad asked her to drive, and, right. and then my dad was like, I think, oh, can you help keep me awake? And then a whole group of people got him in the car and said goodbye, and you know. It was interesting, though, during the writing of the book, <clears throat> for the first time ever, I just never really wanted to think about that, but a lot of people have asked me, oh, was the book cathartic? And i w right. I don't know. I've already processed that in therapy. But for the first time ever in my life when I was writing the book, I map-quested the address I asked my cousin Maureen. I was like, what's the address of your house in Mansfield where the party was? And I Googled the site of the accident, her address, and where the crash was, and then our home, and I realized, My dad had driven for 90 minutes, which I never knew. And then we were only 18 minutes from home. (sighs) So it was just so kind of heartbreaking to be like, ugh, you know. So whether he fell asleep at the wheel or, you know, drinking contributed to that, we we never really know. There was no blood alcohol report. You know, I'm sure if if he did fall asleep, drinking would contribute to that. I lay it out in the first chapter, but we grew up, of course... My dad never wavered from his story of like, no, I had asked him to drive. I'd taken a nap, you know. He, yeah. Um, so I try to kind of lay out all the information in the book. I admired my father. He did a tremendous job raising us. I deeply loved him, and and um, I did not blame him. I felt that it was an accident, you know.
1: Of yeah. course, I yeah. mean, you make that very clear early on, mm-hmm. and I mean, so many little kids or just people of any age kind of disassociate or bury that pain or those memories. Mm -hmm. But even as a little girl, Mm -hmm. you forged ahead and kind of flipped it and used your life experience to make clear observations about adults Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. people and human nature. Mm -hmm. Do you think that is when you started creating characters
0: um well I was just always playing and very creative and I think my dad was very silly in the house my dad would have loved to have been an actor he would always say that oh I wish I would have gone to the Cleveland Playhouse and you know been in shows or been a writer but he didn't have the confidence you know he liked making everything like a game or or you know so i grew up with that he really encouraged that silliness and performing and making stuff up so he made everything fun like if we were on Chagrin boulevard and we went into stouffer's candy next to corky and lenny's he would be like like i love saying all this cleveland yeah, stuff because you yeah. guys know what it is they know. um but he would say like hey, if we go into the candy store, let's pretend like we're blind, okay? And I was like, oh, let's pretend like I'm blind. And I was like, okay, okay. So we would just make everything like a game. So he would be like, is this uh, the chocolate? And knock boxes of candy over. and You know, just very silly, silly. Or he would... Um, if we went, like, um, actually, Ann Ramped, my childhood friend, is here in the hey. audience, the one who I hopped the plane with, so she can verify that we really did hop a plane together when we were like 11 and 12 or 11 and 13, <laughs> 13. by my dad. But anyhow, so when we were little, he would take us, Ann and I, to the May Company, and he was just silly, like, he would go, uh, he just, everything was like shenanigans and games. He would undress the mannequins and unbutton their shirts, and yes. he would take their wigs off and make the hand cup the boob of the other one's hand and, <laughs> and he would walk away. Just like really silly, right, yeah. and then, And then he would also, I'm just going to take my earring off, he would also um, he just did silly stuff, I call it the Jim Shannon School of Acting, where he would be like, he would teach us, teach me how to act in the house. So we would do this thing where I would take a fake phone call and it had to be very realistic acting, which I used on White Lotus, natural. So we would have to answer a phone call and he would be the director, and it would be like, hello Shannon residence, this is Molly speaking. Uh-huh. And I'd have to be very realistic, like I'm listening. And if it seemed fake, he'd go, stop, do it again. But I got so good at it that if friends were in the house, we would trick them and pretend like they were receiving a call. So somebody would call from the other room, call the house or whatever. And then I would answer and say, you're my friend, Erin, and you're at the house. So I'd be like, hello, Shannon residence is Molly. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, Erin's right here. Uh And then I'd be like, "Yeah?" yeah? You know, and I like pull you in to where the friend would be like, oh my god, what's going on? And then we would trick them. So that's how I first learned how to act with my dad. And then but then my dad could also lose his temper because he, you know, he was like a single parent, trying to raise these two little girls, and yeah. you know, he had to cook and clean and take us to piano and pick us up from school. So sometimes he would get stressed out, of course, like any normal parent, having to do all that by himself. And, um, we went to Stofers a lot. We we ate Ugh. everything and he
1: uh, What was your
0: favorite at Stouffer's? Stofers, I get? still love Stofers. Um he would make cream chip beef on
1: toast. Okay. Love, love that.
0: that. <laughs> or I mean it's all delicious. But friends visited and they were like, Mr. Shannon cooks everything in bat plastic bags.
1: <laughs> yeah. Get to know dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <no>, exactly.
0: <laughs> but so he would get a little stressed out sometimes. So like for example, and he'd buy all our clothes and cook cooking and cleaning and um, I have two funny stories I'm going to tell. Sometimes when he would get behind in the cleaning, he would <laughs> pop a little dexamil, who wouldn't? And it's a little combination of an amphetamine and a tranquilizer just so he could catch up on the cleaning. Gotta get And gone. he would be cleaning, cleaning, cleaning. <laughs> and, um, and then one morning my sister Mary came up in my room and she was like, oh my god. Daddy's still downstairs cleaning, and the sun was rising, and we went down in the basement, and he was folding clothes and smoking cigarettes and scratching his arm, like, you know. So we were like, oh no. But then, when the house was sparkling clean, he would play Judy Garland music, like "Swanee," "How I Love You," "How I Love You," and it would blare throughout the house. And that Judy Garland meant the house was sparkling clean. Isn't that great? But so anyhow, Aaron, when he would get stressed out a little bit, like for example, once we went to the lollipop shop with Anne, yes, so he'd be shopping at the lollipop shop and he'd be buying dresses for us as when we were like twelve or whatever, and then he would bring it up to the counter and they would say, "Oh no, I'm sorry, Th- these dresses are not on sale." And he'd go, "What?" He would fl- he' lose his temper and he'd go, "Well, then, hold on and then and I think would watch like, oh no, oh no, he's gonna get so mad. So he would go, well, then this is false advertising. And he would walk over to the whole rack and knock it down and not slide all the clothes off, throw it on the ground and we'd be sitting there like, uh-oh. And then he would take another rack and uh-huh, And then come on, girls, and we'd all walk out of the store. And then he would hurl one last insult at the sales girl, like, and fix your teeth.
1: Amazing. Yeah. So yeah. many funny scenes about the shenanigans that you and Anne Ramft in particular, would yes. get up to. hmm Little things, like going to the May Company to do yeah. some... Bra shoplifting.
0: Oh, yes.
1: Remember the May Company? Don't we miss Higby's and the May Company?
0: Well, that was also because buying a bra is something like maybe you would do with your mother. Mm -hmm. So I felt really kind of embarrassed about it because I didn't have a mother taking me like, oh, honey, let's go get you a bra and see what size you are. So I felt embarrassed about it because it's like a mom thing. So we went and and it's very wrong to shoplift. I would never do that. But at the time, we were a little... We did do. It was like a team thing. Yeah, it's it's wrong, but we did do it. So we went and shop. We shoplifted bras, and I told my dad, "Oh, our gymnastics instructor at Sokol, where we took gymnastics, made us get them." And he was like, "Okay," but I was like, "I want a bra because I love the way it looked with the girls with their Catholic school uniforms on, like seeing their bra silhouetted through their blouse."
1: I was like, "So cool." Let's talk about Catholic school. So I was
0: gonna say too, that's yeah. why there's bra stuff in Superstar. It's very much from like a perspective of a girl who doesn't have a mother, who's looking at things that are feminine, because that part was like really like lacking for me. You know yeah, what I mean? I, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And your dad had a, a great friend who you introduce early in the book, Mr. O'Neill. Yes, Mr. O'Neal.
0: Mr. O'Neill was gay too. I don't yeah. know if I make that clear in the book, but closeted. Yeah. But because these, these gentlemen were born in 1926 in Cleveland, Ohio, where it was just like not an option, much harder. Born a generation or two too early. And uh, it was just, they were, Mr. O'Neill was made fun of, called a sissy. And they were just like, met. In, the two of them, my dad and Mr. Bill O'Neill met in eighth grade, and they were best friends for life. Wow. And, and uh, they just did not. Yeah, come out, but we can get into
1: any of that. Whatever. Yeah, no. Questions. It's just cool that, you know, he had longtime friends, your friends are still here for you. Mm-hmm. It's a really big thing that, you know, not everybody gets. And so yes. you brought mm-hmm. a lot of your friends and the people from Cleveland and put them into your characters later, but we'll move chronologically because we'll talk a lot yeah. about that.
0: And I was going to say, so one more Jim Shannon dare was. So one day oh, my yeah. dad did say, you know what the greatest stunt would be, um, if you and Ann tried to hop on a plane. And he and Ann reminded me last night that he was like, that would get in it. That would make the papers. He had <laughs> dared us one Labor Day. You know, around Labor Day. We both, uh, we thought we we're going to do it. And we went and told Anne's brother. And we thought, if it doesn't work to hop a plane, we're going to go take a ballet class, because we were really into ballet. <laughs> so we were dressed in like pink leotards with our hair pulled back and pink skirts. And like, we looked really innocent. And we went out to the airport. Anne, stand up for a sec. This is yeah. Anne, who I did it with. <laughs> come on stage for a sec.
1: Yeah, come on stage, yeah. Anne. We so, have a so, mic for you.
0: So this is, yeah. And by the way, I told this story on NPR, and they had to verify it. They had to fact check, and they called Jolene Rance, Anne's mom. This is Anne. Yeah, So. Yay. So yeah, so one summer day. So we'll tell the story really okay, fast. Okay. So we go, so we have the belly outfits. We'll, we'll tell it fast. That. So So we go to the airport, and we see, we told her brother, too, we're going to hop a yeah, the plane. He's he was like, like no you're way. never going to do saying, that, yeah, Tom <laughs> Ramp. And then we get to the airport, we see two flights.
2: I wanted to go to San Francisco because my sister was out there, yeah. but that flight wasn't leaving until, like, 5 o'clock.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we thought, let's go. I took the reins, and I was like, let's go to New York City. Yeah. And so we went up to the gate. We ran to the gate. It was about to leave in, like, two minutes, and we yeah. ran really fast. And this is a different time. This is 1976, where you can go straight up to the gate. Yeah. And we were like, can we say goodbye to my sister? And remember, we look innocent. Yeah. Ballet outfits, purple back in, right. and We look like little prima ballerinas.
2: She's like, sure, just be really fast. Yeah. The plane's about to leave. We're like no no no, we'll do it really fast. So then yeah. like, We go to the back of the
0: plane. Go to the back of the plane, duck down, down, and then <laughs> she she forgets about us, right? Yep. And, and then the, the seatbelt light
2: comes on,
0: and the and plane starts backing up like it's, and we're like, oh.
2: then we hold hands, and we're
0: hands, and the then way. we're like, yes, okay. Then we were like silent, I'm like oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, and it's backing <laughs> yeah. up, then it's on the runway, and Then it's, and like, oh it's like oh my gosh, it like, starts to go up in the air, and we're like, come here, full of grace, Lord is so with you, blessed are thy name, blessed the Lord is the of God, forever sinners found the offering, and and then it's like, and we're like, we're in the fucking... Yeah. Ah, yes. and, then, <laughs> and then we get to New York City, and we land... And no, we no, no, the,
2: the waitress oh, comes right. over.
0: She came over to ask our drink orders during like, the flight. She's like, do you ladies
2: want something to, to drink? She
0: looked she was like, like, like she was going to faint when she came over yeah, to get our like, order. She was like, can I get you ladies uh, something yeah. to... <laughs> Drink. Drink. Drink like she look like she yeah. like and we were like I'll have a coke I'll have peanuts, peanuts. yeah <laughs> and then and then she then, then we were so worried when we were gonna get off we're like now what are we gonna say we were or scared we were like- gonna get busted yeah so we're we're sprinting down the runway in our ballet outfits <laughs> and then and then as we're exiting we were scared and she the same stewardess who had given us permission was saying goodbye and she was like.
1: Bye, ladies, have, have, have a, a nice, nice trip. trip.
0: <laughs> <laughs> OK. And it was that easy. And then everything started. And, yeah. And then we went to New York City, and we, we asked, how do you get to Rockefeller how this, Plaza? How do this get to the subway? How to get to everything? Yeah. And I heard about Rockefeller, sent Rockefeller Plaza from TV, and it's weird that I wound up working at Saturday Night Live. <laughs> and we, we didn't have that much money, so we just hopped the turnstiles, and then we dined, dined and, in dash, and dash. <laughs> and stole New York. I love New York t-shirts. Yeah, so. <laughs> stole t-shirts. Very bad, and then we called my dad and he was no, like...
2: No, he left the credit card.
0: Well, first we called him. And said we were there. And so we're in New York. And he was like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. But he couldn't be that mad since he'd given us permission. And then he called Jillian Ramp and she was like, oh, my God, get those girls home. Jim Shannon, what did you do now? Yeah. <laughs> so then he tried. He said, well, why don't you go to a hotel? And try Mary to check and I Mary tried to check in and Mary and I would drive and meet you from Cleveland. And he was like, we'll make a trip of it. But then no hotels would take they us. They wouldn't take us because we were underage. And they're like, you guys aren't 18. You, and he said, e, what if the girls wait in the lobby till like, I come. And they said, no. <laughs> so he was like, all right, you guys got to come back home and try to hop on a plane back, because I'm not paying for it. <laughs> right?
2: <laughs> we were so scared. We're like, no, we don't want to do that.
0: And, and then we did. We tried. Three times. Three times to get <laughs> back on a flight. We tried to hop three more back <laughs> and home. And it
2: didn't work.
0: <laughs> nope, because they were much more crowded flights. Yeah. We're like a t- comedy routine. Right? <laughs> and then it's so funny having Anne here, because I've told this story alone for so many years. So it's so funny it's having you. It's so it. fun to
2: be here with <laughs> you, Molly. <Alice. laughs> <Yay.
0: laughs> is in all over the book. So it's like all, so, so basically, so then we, um, he, he gave paid, us our credit paid card to get and for us the flight. flight. And he
2: said, for the rest of the summer, you guys have to babysit and pay us, pay me, pay me back. back the
0: money. And yeah. that's the end of the story. It was the best day of our lives.
2: Isn't that
0: crazy?
1: Yes. Sorry, Erin. No. That was you amazing. Little... No, okay, go, go. I remember seeing you you know, tell that story, an abbreviated one, on one of the late night shows Yes. when I was in college, and I was just like, yes, that's what it takes. So Sorry. you're an inspiration. Oh, thank Your you. Your criminal activity was incredible. Oh, God. <laughs> <Inspiration>. <laughs> that's hysterical. So it's not surprising you ended up at the Heights Youth Theater. Yes,
0: Heights Let's Youth talk Theater. Let's talk about it. That was so great. Well, that was Cleveland is what really got me into acting, and actually, it was Heights Youth Theater was incredible. Jerry Leonard was the head of it, and they did the most professional plays, musicals, and I got cast in them starting when I was pretty young. Like I played Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, and and I was in um, I did all the shows. We did yeah. Alice in Wonderland, and and it was the most popular theater. Um, Renee stahl Stahl whose mom is also in the audience, met all these great kids, and that's really what got me into acting. And Wendy Leonard, who is also in the audience, right? Wendy, are you here? So Wendy Leonard, their their family ran this Heights Youth Theater. It was the most professional, it was like Broadway-level theater, like brilliant. And I mean, I got so much training in that and did did these plays. And I would start to get recognized in Cleveland, like, oh my god, that's the girl that plays Dorothy. Like, if my dad and I were at the shoe store, I, I loved it. And one of the things I loved about it was like, how affectionate the theater kids were. Like they would all like, want to make like chains and like braid one another's hair. And I was like, <laughs> I was missing the touch of a mother, like a female touch. So that's really what got me interested in, in acting was how like, affectionate the theater kids were. They were so warm and, and nice, touching, and, and like braiding my hair. And I was like, I, this is one of the things I love about show business, you know? Yeah, so and then I also met another fellow Clevelander in those plays, George Cheeks, who's still my really good friend. And George from Cleveland is now the head of CBS, all of CBS. Isn't that crazy? All of CBS. Yeah, and Jimmy Brickman was our piano player. The famous Jim Brickman played the piano at Heights Youth Theater. I mean, it was just like. Top notch, and the shows yes. were sold out, and kids loved it. I mean, very professional. So yes. that's what really made me want to be an actress. Heights Youth Theater. And then also before that, too, yeah, we met these two characters, Miss Patty and Miss Jackie, who would to come to my grade school, St. Dominic's. Mm-hmm. And each grade at St. Dominic's, St. Dominic's Dominic in the house. <laughs> I love it, it's like all Cleveland. So at St. Dominic's, um, they didn't have like a big budget for the arts or anything, but they had these, they did enough to where it was really, this is also what got me interested in acting, was at St. Patrick's Day, each grade, first or eighth, got to do one big Irish number. And um, we wear costumes and we did it on the evening of St. Patrick's Day and uh, Miss Patty and Miss Jackie were these two sister choreographers. Sally O'Malley is kind of loosely based on them because they wore like red spandex pants and they red lipstick and black hair and they were like, five, six, seven, eight, let's go, you know, and teach us our dance. It was just absolutely great, and Sally O'Malley, is yes, kind of based on those ladies, but it's also a combination of my dad, Jim Shannon. Yes. So the character, the character, um, because my dad had a brace on his leg after the accident, he had to learn to walk again. I was always like, oh, I wish he could, I wish he could walk faster. I wish he didn't walk so slow, and I also wish I could sit on his lap, but you could hurt him, so you couldn't just jump on his lap. So it was like, you know. So people don't know this, but when I do the character, I'm imitating him. So when I come on stage, all those years of Saturday Night Live, where I go, you know, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Sally O'Malley. I'm limping. That's me imitating my dad's walk. So I'm like this, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Sally O'Malley. Proud to say I'm 50 years old. I'm not one of those gals who's afraid to tell a real age. And then this is me wishing my dad could kick the braces off his legs. So it's like, and I can kick dread and i I'm 50 50 years old Woo! So it's kind of like So it's kind of like don't be fooled by the limb cuz she seems weak cuz then she's like cuz I can fuck you all <laughs> So So a lot of the characters are kicking like the Joyologists they want to break out yeah, interesting, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay.
1: But before you got to Saturday Night Live, you hustled. Oh you went God. to NYU. You went to Tish. Sorry for my bad language. For Not the at all. <laughs> this is a safe space. Okay, good. The library. Um. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, that will be the one swear word we use. I'll try not to be funny. Okay. Time.
1: Anyway. Yeah. Um, so you went to Tisch, and you, you <clears> originally <throat> were like, I'm a, I'm a dramatic actress. Yes. And uh, when did you when did you learn that comedy was king? I know you went to L. A. too. Yes. Your, your
0: I did. Um, yeah. Thing. I was a very dramatic uh, student there, really into drama. I went to school with Adam Sandler. He was so great. And um, but then I worked at a uh, health club for years during school, but then I was like, God, I'm, I should take advantage of NYU and really audition for a play. It was yeah. expensive. And so um, I auditioned for the show called The Follies, and it was directed by Madeline Olneck And in, and Adam Sandler was also cast in that show. And it was a comedy review show where we kind of make fun of the teachers. It was like a midnight black box theater. And for an exercise while we were rehearsing, Madeline had us. She was like, let's make up characters for the show just um, let's do an exercise where you come through the door and make up a character and I'm gonna play a snotty director and you have to try to impress me. And so I created Mary Catherine Gallagher in that exercise. I just went, hi, I'm Mary Catherine Gallagher. And she said, don't overthink it. And I just did an improv. And she kept being unimpressed. And the character ended up going so well that they wrote the whole show around the character. Yeah. And it became a big hit on campus so much so that there were lines around the block to get into this midnight show. Yeah. And then people on the NYU campus started saying, coming up and going, you should be on Saturday Night Live. And I never thought of it. I was like, really? Oh, wow. And um, so that's when I kind of had the idea. It was
1: kerneling. Yeah. And then you went to L. A. to try mm-hmm. to, you know, do the hustle. Yeah. And you were you waitress at Cravings, which is a hot restaurant. Yeah. And one little thing is that you waited on Julia Roberts. And what did she order?
0: Yes, Julia Roberts and Jen Anderson would come in, and I would watch them. I would like study, study. studying them. Julia Roberts came in for breakfast. Yeah, and I was the hostess so I could watch her. And she just ordered sausage. And I was like, huh. Superstars eat sausage.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Only sausage. Isn't that funny? Have you ever met her since then? I I have. I've met her, but I I never told her that. But I think it's in the book. It's in the book. book.
0: (laughs) And then a young, up and coming Jennifer Aniston came in, too. And she was all business. She came in to have, she was like on the rise, like doing a lot of pilots. And I was like, my god, that's Jen Aniston. She had like a gorgeous blowout, crystal blue eyes. She came like 30 minutes early, and she was taking her agents out for lunch. And she checked out the table and was like, where am I sitting? And, okay, I'm going to sit here. And wanted to make sure it was the right table and set all the menus. I mean, she was business. Like, these girls, you see why they skyrocketed up. Like. And then she held court with her agents and was so nice to everybody. And just so I kind of, like, studied her. And then I stole her sweater because she forgot. It. No, just kidding. just kidding. I'm kidding. That's a joke. That's a joke. Um, but anyhow... She, um, so yes so I would really I would really watch them because we would get all these celebrities coming in isn't that yes. interesting
1: yeah and the whole time you you have to figure out how am I going to get an agent I have to go to all these auditions mm-hmm. you had a bit of a scam called the Mamet scam yes talk about that well that, David Mamet David Mamet
0: was a well he's a very famous playwright he wrote movies and plays, Speed the Plow um, mm-hmm. just so many broadway hits and movies and um he taught at nyu he was a drama teacher just part-time you know and eugene pack my friend who i met at nyu drama school studied more with him i took a few classes but when we were struggling out in hollywood it was really hard to get in the door of these agents we would go drop off our headshots and um, nobody would call and we were like how are we going to break in like you know this is This is just so hard. So we thought up one day the Mammoth scam. And what we did was we, I pretended to be a person who worked for David Mammoth, like his kind of right-hand gal. We knew in Hollywood there would be no cross-check, because he more stayed in Vermont or the East Coast. And um, yes, elusive. And Eugene Pack's fake fake name was Arnold Katz. And basically what we did was, (laughs) We called any agent we wanted to meet. We went to the AFI library and we would do research because there was a big book of agency book of actors and who their representatives were. So we studied. We did research at the AFI library, and I would just look look up comedy girls I liked, like Joan Cusack, and I would go, okay, who's Joan's agent? Oh, they, they're this person. Okay, I want to meet them because I see they're interested in comedy girls. So we each had a list of maybe like you know a bunch of people we wanted to meet, and Friday afternoons at four we'd sit down and make calls. And we got into everyone. So I would call, go, this is Liz Stockwell calling from David Mamet's office. Can I please speak to ex-agent? And they would put the agent right on the phone. I was like, this is so good. <laughs> and, um, and I would say, David speaks so highly of you and your company. And they were very flattered that David Mamet's thinking of them on a Friday afternoon at 4. <laughs> and then I would say, we have this kid, Eugene Pack. He's a sweet, I make him the star of David's new play. He's this up and coming kid who's just uh, you know, hot off the presses, and you really got to meet this kid. He's so talented and And basically, I would say, "Could I please get a meeting for him?" And I would say he's rehearsing and he's running around Hollywood meeting all these agents. And they would go, "Oh, sure, why don't you have him call us when he's out here?" But we had a rule because Gene Pack and I had worked together in sales at Park Avenue Squash and Fitness as Molly. and when we were <laughs> when we were selling health club memberships, you were never allowed to hang up the phone till you got the credit card. That was like the rule rule sales so in the mammoth scam you couldn't hang up the phone until you had the appointment in the book so i would say you know what eugene is so busy let me just make the appointment for him and that way we're not going to bother him because he's so busy (laughs) you know and they would go great and then they might say liz we should have lunch and i would say We're switching offices, but let me have my assistant call you. And I just created this character and we met everyone. We met Bernie Brillstein and we met, I got cast on Twin Peaks through the Mammoth Scam because I really wanted to be on the show Twin Peaks. Yes. And Jean, um, I said, I want to meet the casting director, Joanna Ray. she was like, you know, wonderful, tell David I said hello, and she met me, and she was like, oh, Molly, wonderful, I've got to put you on the show, you must meet David Lynch, and so I got cast as a helping, helping hand lady through Gene Pack, through the Mammoth Scam. Incredible. Well, that's how we got started in Hollywood. Is
1: that how you got <clears throat> your equity card? That's
0: or how you... I got my, si- no, I bag? got my side card
1: before that. Okay, yeah. okay, but it was still really early on, mm-hmm. Uh, some friends, and you guys were, did theater in L.A., Yes. and you started to create these characters, and I wanted to ask about what you call the process of oral writing. Oh, the process
0: of oral writing? Yeah. That's kind of like all the years I did my stage show in L.A., the Rob and Molly show, yes. um, that's where we did characters, and, and I, I did that a lot in L.A. I just started developing a 55-minute show with my partner, Rob Muir. And um, we were just kind of rehearsing my living room. It was very low-key. And originally, we were called The Lumber Company. It was a bigger group of comedians. And then it became just Rob and I. And Rob was my friend who said, comedy is king. The best way to break into show business is is through comedy. And I was like, is it? Is comedy king? And um, (laughs) so. So wait. So what's your? So question? you were doing. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. You, well, I'm ta- Oral I'm writing. About Oral writing. Because Oral. Mary Catherine Gallagher, right, was a she evolved.
0: Yes. It was just that I would do the character in my stage show, and yeah. so I would write out the beats. Like she comes on, she's nervous, she's shy, yeah. starts out shy, then she slowly warms up, and. And then she sings a song or does a monologue. And then she gets carried away and does gymnastics. And then (laughs) she gets sent away because she gets too out of control and she's bad. And then she does get the part and she celebrates. So it was this (laughs) little sketch. It was like four minutes. And I would just develop it in my show over and over and over. And then when I finished the show, I would walk around the block the next day and go, OK, that worked, that joke worked, that joke worked, kind of like that.
1: Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I, it's just such a different process. Mm-hmm. Um, like writing the book, you worked with Sean Willsey, Yes. The author of Oh, the Glory of, of It All. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that process and how y- you collaborated?
0: Yes. Well, Sean and I met years ago through Mike White, and yeah, Sean's memoir is fantastic Oh, the Glory of It All. It's about his growing up in. San Francisco, and it's an excellent memoir. So um, we would just kind of go back and forth, you know, we're we're kind of, because we were in different cities, and we started off, you have to, to sell a book, you have to generate some pages, so you have to submit a 100 page proposal. You know, initially I talked everything out with another guy, Robert Abele, and I would just tell him stories kind of like this, and then we, and then I had those stories transcribed. And then from those pages of transcription, we started turning those into actual written pages that we turned into our first 100 page proposal. Got it. Yeah. So okay. we would just kind of work back and forth. Like, you know, maybe like five pages at a time. Like, we would work on a chapter, like, you know, hopping a plane to New York chapter, or, <laughs> and just go back and forth. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, talk about your big break or when, how did you get back to New York? It was like, You'd originally tried out for Saturday Night Live and been rejected. Yes. Right? It's not like an easy path. Mm -mm. And then once you get there. Can you, can you talk about like the next time?
0: Yes. Yeah. Well, I want to say first, too, just going a little bit back. My dad, when I was struggling in Hollywood, would give me advice. He was kind of like my mom a Gypsy Rose. He was like, <laughs> you know, because I would go, oh, it's so hard. I'm never going to get hired. I'm not blonde and beautiful. And he was like, well, if you have that kind of attitude, you're never going to get anywhere. And he goes, listen, here's what you got to do. You march into the offices of those Hollywood agents and managers, and you say, hey, hold the phone, I got talent. (laughs) And then he was like, and use your singing voice. And I was like, I don't know if that's going to work. But anyhow, but when I had my first big meeting in New York City, when I was at NYU with a talent manager, Barbara Jarrett, who represented Jerry O'Connell, he was was in Stand By Me, he and his brothers were all big actors in New York, kids with freckles. I know Jerry now in LA. But anyhow, Barbara did have me do exactly that. She had me sing a show tune for my audition. And um, this is like my first year in New York City. I was like a real talent manager. And she was like, so I sang. For my audition, I sang Chicago by Judy Garland. Mm. And I took my dad's advice and I put on my high heels and I dolled myself up and I went in her office and I was like... Chicago, Chicago, that toddle in town, that toddle in town, Chicago. And then I, and then she, uh, I think I jumped on the desk. I'll show you around. I love it. Bet your bottom dolly you lose your blues in Chicago. And then she was like, you got it, kid. And she, and she signed me on the spot. And I was like, yes. Jim Shannon knows what'll work. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Were you a cheerleader? <laughs>
0: it was a, uh, I was a cheerleader at oh, okay. St. Dominic's. Yeah. Okay, there you go. <laughs> but we, we did not have the budget, so we would have to make our own like, crepe paper pom-poms that were not that good, but I was yeah. like,
1: we've got the spirit. You've you got know? the spirit yeah. still. Yeah. Um, so you get to New York, and, and it's the audition process. Can you talk about the first time you, you auditioned for Lorne Michaels?
0: Yes. Saturday Night I had come around five years before that. I heard they were looking for women, and um, I remember they asked us to make a tape, and I didn't have that much money, so I, I used all my waitressing money, yeah. and I made like a five-minute reel of different characters, and, but then I found out that I was passed over. He was going to invite some other women in, but not me. I don't know if he ever saw the tape. I actually don't think he did. It was probably just assistance. And I found out on a payphone outside of my apartment on the corner of Fountain and Vine across from the El Pollo Loco that I didn't get the job, that I wasn't going to be asked, and I cried and cried. But then I thought, you know what? I was like, if they ever come back again, I'm going to work really hard on my characters. So I'm just going to work on my stage show and write and develop and write and create more characters. So if they come back again, I'm going to be locked and loaded and ready. And sure enough, five years later, they came back again. And they were like, we're looking for women again. And they asked for a tape. And I was like, no, 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 no tape. Come see my stage show, because I knew that show rocked. It was like a 55-minute tight show. So Marcy Klein came to see my show, and it went great. And I actually had almost wanted to give up show business before that, because there was so much rejection that I got kind of like, I don't know if this is working. So I kind of stopped doing anything for like a year. I just worked in restaurants. And I was like, maybe I'll become a real estate broker or teacher. And um, I had kind of given up, but when, yeah. but sure enough, just when you let go, Marcy Klein calls, and so we quickly put a show together for her. And I said, Rob, do you mind? Can you do another show? Yeah. And um,
1: your acting partner, my your acting writing partner, writing.
0: yeah. And I said, I'll pay the band, just show up. And he was like, No problem. And it went great. So it's so like a that showcase was, or something. That was yeah. so good. And, and there was actually a woman before that who had unofficially called herself the talent scout, unofficial talent scout in New York. But she was not really, she was more into comedy boys. And I was like, she's missing all the good women. I was like, she was not very helpful. So I was really glad when Marcy Klein took over. Um, And as a matter of fact, when the woman who called herself the unofficial talent scout for SNL, when she got wind that I was auditioning, I was finally jumping over her. Because I was like, she's not getting me anywhere. I could never get in, even though she knew my stage show for years, but she would never bring me to audition. So She got kind of jealous when she heard that I was getting in through Marcy. She was like, well. And she'd seen my stage show for years where I do Mary Catherine Gallagher. And she said, well, I have one bit of advice for you. Whatever you do when you do your audition, don't do that character Mary Catherine Gallagher because you'll never get hired. Lauren will hate it. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Yeah.
1: So. It's insane. Yeah. But you did get through.
0: I did get through. So. Tell us. Yeah, so eventually I did um, get asked to fly to New York City. And they have you do five minutes of characters Five characters in five minutes, and you get put up at a stand-up club. And Chris Farley was at my audition in Lorne, and I was so excited. And my audition went great. I didn't find out right away if I'd gotten the job. So then I flew back to LA, and some people were telling me, "I heard you're going to get Saturday Night Live," and I go, "No, I don't. No, I didn't hear anything." And then, sure enough, one day I got a call. Lorne wants to meet you and talk to you a little more, and I was like, "Oh my god, I'm so excited!" Okay. So I flew to New York, and they pick you up in a limousine. It's so nice, and I had a great meeting with Lorne. Yeah. Then I went to my sister's house to celebrate that i just met Lorne Michaels. I still didn't know if I got the job. My sister and her husband and I all had a glass of Pinot Noir, and we toasted my good meeting to Lorne. And then I went back to my hotel, and it was at night. And I walked on the streets of Tribeca, and I got mugged. There was like a scary <laughs> drug addict, and he he took he came out of nowhere, and he looked really scared, and he grabbed me and threw me down on the ground, and like you know took my wallet. And I was like, oh my god! But I wasn't that scared because I was so excited that I just met Lorne, that, that nothing could get me down. And I yeah. remember thinking, I was like just be like water just be like water and you know he has me down on the ground and i was like D- do you want my coat and he was like no that's okay you can keep the coat and then i was like oh he's so sweet, so sweet. <laughs> And then it was like kind of like Stockholm syndrome, where like he's like my captor, but I was like, oh my god, I think I'm in love. Ah. And then we got engaged, and it's just just kidding. (laughs) No, it was very scary. It was scary, but I was still like, I just
1: met Morn. Yeah, Yeah. that's the best time to get mugged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you and Lauren have a very special relationship to this day. Yes. Like you really bonded. Yes. So yes. much has been written about him and you know, he's very scary. Yeah. You know, oh, as no. as the viewer of SNL. Oh, we've so been funny. conditioned to know oh, like that's so what Lauren says goes. Talk about your experience meeting him and what bonded you guys so quickly.
0: Well Lauren lost his father when he was a kid. Yeah. So we've always really connected over loss of a same-sex parent at a young age. I lost my mom, he lost his dad. Yeah. So I think we have a, a, a deep understanding of one another. Yeah. So I actually just had dinner with him in LA, so we are very close. Warren's a very loyal, and he's like a really deep thinker. He's really intelligent. And yeah. I, I just like love him so much. He's absolutely wonderful. OK. Yeah, yeah.
1: Let's talk about Mary Catherine Gallagher. I mean, because that was really the breakthrough sketch. Yes. Um, Can you tell us how do the sketches get on the shows?
0: It's a really hard job. It's a writing job. You're competing with 17 other people for a spot on the show. And it's really hard. You have to write your way in. And when I first started, I I went to one writer, and I was like, you know, "Mm." I have this character, Mary Catherine Gallagher, that I do in my stage show. And I showed, I wrote it up. And he looked at it and he goes, yeah, yeah, you know, the reason this can't work is because that's not really a joke and that'll never work and that, that doesn't make any sense. And I was like, You know, had I listened to him, I would have just stopped. But I was like, No, I know it works. Yeah. So I was just like, Next, get out of here. So then I went to this guy, Steve Quorin, who I'm still very close to. Steve was a big writer on Seinfeld after SNL, and um, he wrote Bruce Almighty. He's written all kinds of movies, he writes a lot for Adam Sandler. So Steve just said, just tell me what you do in your stage show. And we wrote that up, and that was my very first sketch. He buoyed it with a few more jokes, and I put it into the read-through, and Lauren really liked it, so that woman was very wrong. Because he had never <laughs> seen it for my audition, so he was like, ooh, this is... So he said, you know what, Molly, I like it, but let's wait till next week when Gabriel Byrne is the host. Yes. And, um, and Gabriel Byrne, he'll play the Irish priest so then it got, it went for the next week, and then um, I read it at the read-through. It got picked, of course. But then you do a dress show before the live show. And for some reason, the stuff that they don't believe in as much, they put at the bottom of the dress show schedule. And I saw, and I was like, why is Mary Catherine at the bottom? That kind of means they don't believe in it, because. Between dress and air, they, they do a fat show for dress because they're going to cut like six sketches that won't make it. And those are usually sketches that are at the bottom. Right. So I thought, I don't think they're understanding what this is going to be physically. Because, you know, I had just read it at the table. So they're not understanding when you read stage directions like, oh, she falls into chairs, she does a back hand spring. Oh, you know, and I thought, I'm going to really, I, I, I was so mad because I thought, I'm really going to have to show them what this is. So I did it great on the dress rehearsal. Yes. And then we all go into Lauren Michaels' office between the dress show and air, and it's like 11, you know, maybe like 11 15. And you go in, and you're, you, you might still be in your costume from dress in a costume of a sketch that gets cut, you know, or, and you go in and you look at the bulletin board in his office and you look to see what's made it in the show and what's cut. Yeah. And I went in and I looked at the bulletin board, and Mary Catherine Gallagher got moved from the bottom of the show to the top. And I was like, yes. <laughs> yeah, and it, cha- it changed my life. It changed my life.
1: Yeah. I mean, the comedy is so physical. All of your comedy is very physical, even if it's mm-hmm. understated. Yeah. And it strikes me that it was so punk. You know, mm-hmm, like the, mm-hmm. you were just like kicking and you'd be bruised and you would slam into walls and tampon dispensers. Yeah. And I know this is a big audience question. Like, how did you come up with the whole teenage shame of when I get nervous? Oh my you know, God. Totally well, it. that was really Anne ramped
0: in me too. Like when we were. <laughs> <Anne>. <laughs> that's Ann and I again. Because once we were in Florida, we were like on vacation at the Holiday Inn in West Palm Beach, Florida. And we actually were going through puberty and we smelled our underarms. And we were like smelled one another as we were like, ooh, that's good. So that's from Ann. It's, it's Ann's <laughs> fault. It really is, right? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, and I was just gonna say one more really touching thing about about Gabriel Byrne and the um... after my mom died when we were really little, we were four. um, Nobody wanted to talk about it, you know. When we were in the hospital, it was very confusing because nobody would tell us what was going on. I was like, "Where's my mom? Where's Katie? Where's everybody? Where's my dad?" You know, and all these relatives are just bringing us toys and. And my sister Mary, who'd survived, was in the bed next to me, and I was like, "Well, maybe I'll let her be my guidepost." But she was just kind of looking out the window, crying and crying, and and so I I was just like, Ugh. "I finally one day was like, I want to go see my mom." I, I made up that she must be on another floor. She, I was like, she must be with Katie, my baby sister, in the baby section. So I got dressed and I went up the ramp to the double doors to go look for her. And the nurses were like, ah, 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 you got to come back to your bed, come back to your bed, come back to your bed. And they brought me back to my bed. And then finally, an aunt did tell us, I'm so sorry. You know, your mother and your sister have gone to heaven. And I was like, what? Like, heaven? I just couldn't accept it. It was very confusing. And I was like, well, could we get there? Could we take a hot air balloon? I just couldn't accept it. But to make a long story short, nobody ever really wanted to bring it up after that. Nobody want to talk about it. They were like, "She's in heaven, like it's good news. Like it's heaven. <laughs> you know? And um, I, when we moved back home, my dad recuperated my aunt Bernie's house for like a year, and I went, to, I went to kindergarten in, I think, Caledonia in her neighborhood. And then we moved back to, finally, we moved back to our family home, and that was nice to get back. But the only person who acknowledged our loss was Father Murray at St. Dominic's, and he had an Irish brogue. Mm-hmm. And we went to mass one day and I was probably five now at the time and he after church knelt down and held my hand and he goes, Now Molly, you lost your mom and you lost your sister. It's very, very sad. This is a deep loss. Your mother He goes, You know God is gonna watch out for you. He's good to you and this is very hard for you and your sister Mary. And um I was so grateful that he acknowledged the loss because the pain felt so deep that I appreciated that he acknowledged how sad it was. And you know, nobody else are like, "Oh, don't talk about it; it'll make him too sad." But really, I wanted this. So it's it's interesting that Gabriel Byrne, the Irish Catholic priest in, you know, the first Mary Catherine Gallagher, yeah. reminds me of Father Murray. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Ah, uh, love well, Gabriel. Yeah, Brown. yeah. Yeah. In treatment, I'm flashing <clears throat> Yeah, but but you were saying your question was about physical, or what is it?
1: Oh, that? I guess, just mm. so physical, so punk. You played Courtney Love, which made total sense. Yeah. I think
0: I liked being, throwing myself around. I think it's like maybe wild. I, for some reason, I couldn't feel anything when I was falling into chairs or cutting myself. I, I didn't feel any pain when I was doing yeah. it, and I'm very glad I didn't injure myself. But the stuntmen were like, she's out of a mind. <laughs> they couldn't believe it. They would, um, but I, w- I just, I would feel the next day like, oh, my muscles would hurt and I would notice like bruises, but at the time I didn't feel it. I just wanted to immerse myself in the yeah. character.
1: Adrenaline. Yeah. Um, so you were there how many seasons? I
0: did six seasons. Six
1: seasons. Mm-hmm. And it was Will Ferrell. Yes,
0: he's my good friend, and Will. Kerry yeah. And
1: yes, uh, Sher- So yeah. many people. Yeah, Tim Meadows. Yeah. Um, and you did so many great characters. Your dad became close and beloved by your SNL family.
0: Yes. Well, right. it was great because I kind of got to give that to my dad because he always wanted to be in show business. So giving yes. him access to that world was like a dream come true. Like he met Conan O'Brien and Adam Sandler and <laughs> Marcy Klein. And, you know, when Norm MacDonald met my dad, my dad came to SNL dressed. My dad dressed really well. He wore like ascots and cashmere coats. And Norm MacDonald said, <laughs> Referring to my dad, he was like, he seems like he should be in show business more than you or me. I was like, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Isn't that funny? Norm. So yeah, my dad loved that world. And coming to SNL, and he'd watch every show, so proud of me. And um, as a matter of fact, when I was doing my stage show working at Cravings, I invited this one Irish mom. I go, oh, you got to come see my stage show, because I would invite all my customers to my stage show to make it look like a hot show in case a business person came. I'd invite all the customers. And um, this woman came, and then um, I got her tickets, and then I saw her at Cravings, and I go, what would you think of the show, and, you know? And she said, well, that character, Sally O'Malley, that is mm. disgusting, it's so body with a and, and I was like, oh my gosh. I'm so glad I didn't have a mother like this. So critical. I was like, Jim Shannon loves it. He's like, that's my Molly. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't care. He lets me hike my pants up as far as they go. No, no judgment from Jim.
1: Yeah. Uh, Jim. <laughs> Could you talk about the infamous Mother's Day episode?
0: Well, that was so special because you, the, you, basically Lauren does a show. This is I had already left the show, but I said, Lauren, I really want to come back mm-hmm. to get let my dad do the show. And um, he was like, of course, bring your dad back. And it's, it's a show where they have all the mothers with the cast members. So um, I brought my dad and Maya Rudolph. Her, she had lost her mom when she was a little girl, too. So she also brought her dad. And they had the parents do like a song and dance number, and a sketch. And um, it was such a big day for my dad, because he got to go through hair and makeup. And he said, oh, and rehearsing the dance. And he was like, boy, oh boy, people don't know how much goes into this. This is incredible. And, uh, but he was a little frail. And um, he, uh, he told me on that trip, he was like, I hate to tell you this, but I have cancer. He had, he had prostate cancer. I was like, "Oh my God! I'm so glad he told me."
1: Yeah.
0: But um, so that was very touching that he that he told me that, you know.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> and you and you felt good about the fact that you would made this the decision to leave SNL.
0: Yeah, and I was going to say one more thing about that. My dad was thin, so it I was a little bit bittersweet because I felt like I finally got him on television, but he was so thin because he was sick, mm-hmm. and. He didn't like the way he looked on TV. He saw himself. He was like, oh, I hated the way I looked. He called me because after the show aired, I think I was in Toronto doing a movie, we had a phone call. And I said, oh, no, 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 don't think that. I go, all actors, we all hate the way we look. We don't like looking at ourselves. We all think we look bad. And everybody thinks that. And he was like, really? Oh, that makes me feel so much better. But Tom Farron, a wonderful uh, critic journalist in Cleveland, wrote a beautiful piece on my dad in The Cleveland Plain Dealer. I Mm -hmm. love Tom Farron, And um, my dad was so touched, he read it to me over the phone. And it was like how Jim Shannon was on Saturday Night Live. And my dad read it to me over the phone, and he got so choked up. It meant so much to him to be written up about that in The Plain Dealer. dealer. and Lauren Michaels always said, he goes, you know, Molly, it's so funny. He goes, I could be in the New York Times or this paper or that, but my mother only cared if it was the local paper. Like it meant yeah. so much more, you know, than than anything. It's That's true. Interesting. It's so and true. Michael Heaton is another great Cleveland journalist who did a piece. I mean, he's wonderful, and I know his sister Patty Heaton. She's great from Cleveland. There's just so many great Cleveland people out in Hollywood. That's yeah. true. So anyhow.
1: Amen. Yeah. So you and your dad got to share some really um, wonderful times before he passed. Yes. You know, you kind of got to re and get really close. Mm-hmm. And you had gleaned, you know, toward the end of your time on the show at SNL that your dad might be gay. Yes.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, what happened was he showed up to my last Saturday Night Live. Um, it was like my last big week. That was before the Mother's Day special, because I had left and then the right. Mother's Day specials later. And um, I was dating my husband at the time, Fritz. And uh, my dad, my dad was, at the time, he hadn't told me a cancer, because the Mother's Day special, because uh, my last show was before, yeah. So he was keeping the faculty a cancer secret. My dad was, had found, gotten sober in AA for years and years and years, and really worked a very hard AA program. And I was so proud of him and did that, you know, worked yeah. really hard and was, found sobriety and worked with his fellows in the program. And was just, just, I'm so proud of him. And, um, but he slipped that day when he flew in. I think he was keeping cancer a secret. And um, he basically was stressed out. And I think he was like, he just was having all kinds of feelings. So we ended up flying in and went to the Hyatt Regency Bar and got a little drunk and met a college kid and brought the college kid back to my apartment. And I was like so bummed. And he was like, Molly, this is. Charles, and, and I was like, ugh. So then I called my, uh, I think, and then me and that kid and my dad all went out for dinner, and after they left, my, I met my dad stay in a hotel that night because I was kind of disappointed with him, and I called my good man, my manager, Stephen Levy, yeah. and I was like, oh, my dad showed up drinking, and it, I'm just, it's too stressful because I have my big last show, and And my manager kept defending him. He was like, he's given up so much for you girls. He's given up so much for you girls. I go, what are you saying? And now let me set this up that my manager is openly gay. And my manager had also lost his dad when he was a kid. And so he had bonded. And so my dad was kind of like a surrogate father to him. They'd gotten really close over the phone, talking from Cleveland and Hollywood, really bonded and sharing stuff. And um, my dad opened up to Stephen. So during that conversation, when I'm complaining to Stephen, I go, Why do you keep saying he's given up so much? I go, Are you saying, Stephen, he's gay? And he was like, He's going to tell you. I didn't want to tell you, but he's going to tell you. And I was like, Oh my God. And it kind of made everything come together, like the just everything. I felt such compassion, like the anger and drinking, you know, everything. It started the to accident, make Accident pieces fitting together. And I felt deep compassion. And then my dad ended up making up, of course, we made up. He was gonna go home, and then I was like, We made up. And he goes, I'm sorry, I was drinking, I'm just a little stressed out. I go, I understand. And we totally made up. And he stayed in my apartment, and we ended up having the best week. And he came to my closing party that Lauren threw me at the Hudson Hotel, but he still didn't tell me he was gay. But I was like, waiting for him. And Of course, <laughs> stone sober, you know, back on track. Yeah. But basically, I, he still wasn't telling me. I was like, When's he gonna tell me? And now he's 72 years old, and no, he's dying of cancer too. So, so he flew back to Cleveland after that, still hadn't told me. Then I said, why don't you come to L.A.? I have a press junket for serendipity. So I flew him out to the Four Seasons. And it's like We each had our own fancy rooms, and it was paid for by Paramount. And Eating lunch, Cobb salads. Then we moved over to the pool, and I thought, you know what? I'm just going to ask him because he's not telling me. And um, I just was brave, and I asked the question that only a daughter could ask their father when he's still alive. <laughs> and I was brave, and I was just like have you ever thought you might be gay? And um, he was like, most definitely. (laughs) And I was like, what? Oh, my God. I couldn't believe it. I was like, wait, did he just say most definitely? And then we ended up taking a road trip to, to Ojai, California for the next 72 hours, and we talked about everything under the sun, and I asked him about Mr. O'Neill. I was like, did you, were you ever with Mr. O'Neill? And he's like, no, he's my good friend, and I, I really loved him, And but it was not that way for me, but he was my you know confidant and best friend. and." And then he told me everything, and I was so happy for him. I asked him any question under the sun, and I was happy to hear, you know. We had the greatest talk, and he was very open. I said, "When did you know you were gay?" And he was like, "Oh, Molly, I knew when I was in grade school I would go on double dates and but I was much more interested in the man. and I remember this I liked this kid from Poland and I liked the way he held his cigarette. It looked so sexy, his sexy hand and you know, and I was like, "Oh, that's so cool and and then ah, this part makes me cry a little. And I, I was like, uh." Yeah, and he just said, I would like to look at the JCPenney catalogs and look at the men in their undershirts and their big builds. I was like, yeah, who wouldn't? You know? And then um, so he just told me anything and everything. We had the best, best talk. And Allison Earl Daub, who's also from Cleveland, came and visited us. And my dad loved Allison, And we had the best time. And we just, it was deep love. And any yeah. question answered. And, and uh, he died six months later. Yeah, and so it was such an, such an honor that he came out to me, and you know I, I feel very touched. And he didn't get to live to say whether how he would label himself, whether he's queer, bisexual, or gay, or whatever. My dad did date women, right. but um, it was a real honor. And we had a phone call after that, and, and I didn't want to bring it up again because I figured I would let him lead, but after that we had a phone call, and he just said, you kn- did you know you're my lucky star? And I was like, oh, thank you. <laughs> and, and he said... Uh, you know, I want you to know that having you girls was the best thing I ever did. And he didn't want me to think that, like, he wished that he wouldn't have been a parent. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. of course I understand. And, and uh, you know, we had had another conversation before that, too. This was years before at the Palm Beach Hotel, where I confronted him about the accident. And I said, you know, we lost our mom. You do talk about how you lost your wife. And he said, Molly. He said, There's not a day that goes by that I don't think about that accident and
1: yeah. pray for them. And, you
0: know,
1: it's very sad. Yeah. His love for you is so big. It's yeah. so big. Like it is your moxie. Yeah. Yes, you know? yes. It drives you. And
0: so I really deeply love my father and I admired him and I feel like he. He pulled himself up after that accident when he found out they had been killed. And they said, oh, Peg is gone, and, 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 and Fran is gone, and your baby Katie's gone. And he said, no, no, no. And he pulled himself up and did his best job raising us. And I, I admire my dad. And yeah. my book is meant to honor the life of my mom, Margaret Peggy Keating, and my father, James Francis Shannon. And I did hesitate to write about him being gay and coming out because he wasn't out to people. But I was like, as the daughter, I feel like my dad was always very generous about, you should share that story. Like, I would tell the story about cleaning pills on Letterman. I go, is that OK if I tell? You know? And he was like, that'll be good. It could help a recovering alcoholic. He would always yeah. let me tell stories. So I did know my dad pretty well. And he liked mm-hmm. being in the papers and, you know. So, anyhow. Yeah. This is a sad
1: one. It's beautiful. Be... Um, yeah. Okay. We better wrap okay. it up. One of the questions um, from the audience, too, was when you became a mom, how did that make you feel missing your own mom? Oh, did it give you. Thank you, Erin. It gave me, I always knew I wanted to be a
0: mom. And when yes. my dad was dying, he knew. He goes, he knew I wanted to be a mom. And he goes, you know, I was dating Fritz. And he goes, you know, hurry up and, you know, Mary, I know you want to get married and have yeah. kids. He knew I wanted that because. And so, um, yeah, so he was very encouraging of that. And he also gave me advice on his deathbed. He had loved this one movie that I did called Analyze This, where I played uh, a, a character, Caroline, who had just broken up with her boyfriend. And Billy Crystal was the analyst. It was just one small scene in a movie. But my dad loved that scene. He was like. You know, that's such a good small part. So it's a scene where I'm crying. My character's crying to Billy Crystal. I'm going through a breakup, and I'm crying. And then he goes, that's our time, Carol. And the session's over, and I go, you're just like my ex. And my dad loved it. So on, on his deathbed, he was giving my sister and I advice. We were saying goodbye. We were at the Cleveland Hospital. And we were like, will you watch over us from heaven? And he was like, indeed. And then he said, he couldn't really talk, but he was like, one bit of advice, and we were like, okay, we couldn't hear him, so he took an inhaled oxygen and he was like, small parts, and we were like, small parts, yeah, and then he was like, in movies, and we were like, yeah, in movies, and then he went, like, analyze this, and then we were like, like, analyze this, and then he flatlined, dad died, and then. Ann Ramp's mom, Jolene Ramp, just asked a question. He yeah. was dead. She was like, wait, Molly, who was that boy that you dated that you <laughs> broke up with? And my dad heard it, and he did not like this boy. And I swear, I am not kidding you, he was dead? Flatline, dead. They're like, that's it, he's dead. And he came back to life and cursed him. And he went, Aah! and then died again. <laughs> It's he really true. Did. He did. He did. <laughs> That's the Irish for you. It's like, <clears throat> what's Irish Alzheimer's? They remember everything except for their grudges. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, to wrap up, do you mind doing a little bit of. Mary Catherine Gallagher. Oh, my god, sure. Well, aren't there questions from the audience, or
0: no? Is well, that enough? We've run out of time. Kinda,
1: that was some of them. I do want to Oh, that was hear, some of them? That's mean, fine. If you're willing, we can if, is everyone willing to stay for a couple more minutes? Oh, sure. You want to ask, like, three more questions or something? Sure. Yes. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about some of your dramatic work. Oh, sure. Oh, my god, Other People. Thank you. Um.
0: Well, that's Chris Kelly wrote Chris that. He's Kelly. a really good friend of mine. And I do the other two with him. And I believe Vanessa Bayer's parents are in the audience. I'm doing this great show called I Love That For You on Showtime. And I think Vanessa Bayer's
1: parents are
0: here. And Vanessa's the best. Another Cleveland native. She created her own show called I Love That For You that will be premiering on Showtime at the end of the month. Vanessa wrote it with her partner, Jeremy Byler. It's a fantastic Ah. show. And Vanessa is the lovely. And I love that I'm working with my fellow Clevelander, who also mm. was on Saturday Night Live. And it's just so cool because I play Jackie, who's the queen salesperson of Home Shopping Network. And Vanessa is the like one who kind of looks up to me. And I take her under my wing. And it's, it's a great show. Yes. Great show. Yes. Of yes. <laughs> so it's all like Cleveland connected. Isn't that crazy? It's amazing. Yeah. So, what? so, um, and yeah, the, Chris Kelly is a great friend of mine. He's a writer. The Other People's such a good movie. It's based on his mom who died of cancer, and he was the head writer at SNL. And then I do a TV show with him called The Other Two, that's on HBO Max now. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and I work with Mike White, my good friend on White Lotus. Mike's dad was also closeted homosexual, who was an activist, you know, going to churches in the South, being you know, fighting. But Mike's dad was also closeted, so we have that in common. And same with yeah. my friend Marcy Klein, Calvin Klein was closeted, too. And so I have a lot of friends who have, who had closeted parents, but then came out or
1: whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of find each other. Yeah, yeah. Um, what about your favorite movies and you know and comedies outside of the work that you've done?
0: Oh yeah, that I mean, inspired you. To be yeah, I love Year of the Dog, and I loved White Lotus playing. My kids and I—we got to go to the Four Seasons. We shot that during COVID, and we we got to stay in the hotel, and and it was just so great. My kids were doing remote school, so it was the greatest job ever. Jennifer Coolidge—it was just the whole cast took uh-huh. over the hotel. We had the whole hotel to ourselves, and my kids would like do school on the beach, and then they everything was shot in the hotel. So they'd walk by, and I'd be I'd be like, I'm gonna be in the restaurant shooting a scene with you know. You know, I'll be with Mike White, and they'd walk by in their snorkel gear and be like, "Hi, Mike! Hi, Mommy!" You know, and they'd go up to the <laughs> job. It was the greatest job ever. It was so fun, yeah,
1: amazing. But yeah, your dad loved Judy Garland. Yes, he called you his Elizabeth Taylor.
0: Yes, my did. dad would cut out pictures of Elizabeth Taylor when I was a little girl and say, "You look like a very young Elizabeth Taylor <laughs> in National Velvet." Yes,
1: yeah. you so, kind of yeah. do in yeah. that little schoolgirl picture.
0: Yeah. But anyhow, anyway, yeah, we can stop. I, yeah.
1: No, Thank it's you. exciting. I'm so
0: glad to be back in Cleveland. I love Cleveland so much, Yay. and it was such a great place to grow up. And I'll end by saying, Yay. Cleveland, I love you. Superstar. Superstar. Yay. Thank you. What? Right? I know you're perfect. Right. Amazing. Okay, good. Thank you guys. Thanks for coming. I really appreciate it. Thank you.